0: Next on Upstate's HealthLink on air, we'll talk about running with the physical therapist who won the J.P. Morgan Corporate Challenge in Syracuse
1: two years in a row. People who probably run more than 50 miles a week um, were actually at the same, had the same prevalence of hip and DOA as someone who
2: were, was sedentary and didn't run at all.
0: Then we'll learn about the hunger hormone ghrelin and its role in stimulating appetite.
2: Ghrelin effectively is how your stomach tells your brain to eat. There's an area of cells in the top of our stomach that's secreting more and more ghrelin into our bloodstream and effectively activate the hunger response.
0: And we'll discuss grief and how it applies to people who have been caregivers. They don't wanna let go
3: of that role, but they need to sometimes. They need to take a break from it.
0: All that and a visit from our healing muse coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a chemist from Syracuse University will tell about ghrelin and how this hunger hormone stimulates appetite. Then, a bereavement counselor from Hospice of Central New York will discuss how caregivers deal with grief. But first, a physical therapist who won the J.P. Morgan Corporate Challenge race two years in a row talks about running. Upstate physical therapist Lee Barubi finished as the top male runner at the 2017 J.P. Morgan Corporate Challenge in June, and he was the top male finisher in 2016 as well. Here today to talk about running is Lee Barubi. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thanks. So, so this is a 3.5-mile course, a little bit more than a 5K. Mm-hmm. Um, and you finished this year in 17 minutes, 34 seconds, which beat your time from last year by two seconds. Yes, it
1: did. Just two <laughs> seconds. but I'll take it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you are also seven seconds ahead of the next fastest runner. Mm-hmm. So take us back to that afternoon.
1: Um, so I, I each year I, I do the Corporate Challenge since I've started working here. Um, I've done it the year before. And uh, every year I just kind of make it so my training is... Uh, on par for the race by the time I get to it, and uh, the the race day itself was a little bit cooler in the weather, um, which I'm someone who likes it maybe a tad bit warmer and a little less rain, um, but...
0: And it was late in the day, right? It's um, an afternoon yep, it's race? it's usually
1: after, after- afternoon after work, um, so I worked the day and then headed over to the race, warmed up real quick, and uh, just had a good race. It was a lot of fun.
0: So did you start out um, in front and stay that way, or did you... Were you further back and had to overcome other runners? or? Um, I
1: think there was one or two runners that were in front of me for the first mile or so. And then after the first mile, I, I took the lead after that and um, started to push a little bit more. Um, I actually got passed by one of my... I trained with the the person who, who was second, Andrew Dion. And he passed me probably with about... Um, a little less than a mile to go and that kind of gave me that extra push to get there to the finish and I um, last half mile uh, got past him and uh, made it to the finish thankfully.
0: But he was on your feet?
1: Yep he was right there pretty (laughs) much pushing me the entire way.
0: So that actually helps.
1: Yes it it really does to have someone else there that you can work off of because a lot of times running is one of those sports that really challenges you um, mentally as much as physically so if you have someone else there to push and is uh, basically suffering along with you, then it gives you that extra little bit.
0: Well, is there anything about the race, because you've run it many years, have you learned from previous of corporate challenges um, that you brought with you to this year's race?
1: Um, so I've, I've run uh, many years as a high school and college athlete. So a lot of my experiences uh, help me when I'm in a, uh, various races. Um, so I employ a lot of different tactics when I'm running. Um, but in general, I'm, I'm fairly comfortable um, out in the, um, the front of a race and know what my limitations are, what I, my strengths are when I'm racing. Um, so I m- employ all of those different tactics during a race.
0: So tell us a little bit about your race prep. I know for this race you worked during the day, mm-hmm. um, but did you eat differently? even the day, the day before, the morning of?
1: So typically I actually like to stay on a routine of what I eat, so I don't like to, and I would recommend this for even, for any runner really, um, that you stay on a routine when you're training or racing. Um, one of the biggest mistakes you can make is if you try some new food right before the race. Um, that's always uh, usually a bad idea. Um, so I like to keep it the same routine every day um, as far as my training goes and my race preparation. Um, as far as warm-up and everything that I do.
0: So what what kind of a warm-up? Is it like stretching?
1: Um, so for me, usually it's just uh, I do about anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes of just light jogging and maybe a little bit of what we call active warm-up or active stretching, which could be um, activities such as skipping, uh, karaoke, um, which is kind of, it's almost like a a dance type stretch thing it's hard to explain huh? unless i'm showing you in person <laughs> but um anything that can just loosens up the body before you run and gets your heart rate elevated
0: and then um during the run how do you keep yourself focused and motivated i mean it's, it's 17 minutes but mm-hmm. but how do you how do you occupy that time
1: um I guess I I personally love to race, so it's exciting for me, and it's just another challenge. But I think what prepares you to do that is the training that leads up to it. So I do a lot of interval training um, every week um, before that. I do at least one to two workouts a week, and those workouts actually prepare you for the race. So um, the workouts, in some ways, are harder than the race itself. The race is just fun, and you can enjoy it a little bit more. Yes, you are working hard, and... it is a little bit painful, but, um, the workouts before I make, um, a lot harder than the race itself.
0: Okay. Well, it turns out you're part of the Upstate co-ed team that qualifies to race in the championships for Corporate Challenge. Um, we have Christina Fallon from Pharmacy, uh, John Cole from Environmental Services, and Kara Levere from Nursing. Mm -hmm. So did you all, um, you all plan to attend the championship together?
1: Um, as of right now, I believe so. Um, we'll have to see what time the race is. I don't. Uh, it's not announced yet when the race will occur. Um, we're all very excited about winning um, the race. I, I think the Corporate Challenge is a great event because it's this sh- social and community event um, that really promotes wellness within our community. So it's uh, great for upstate to, to represent ourselves um, in the community as basically practicing what we preach and showing that wellness and health is important. Um, so we're all really excited about it, and hopefully we can go to the, wherever the championship is, which hasn't been determined yet, as I know, as what, from what I know. Um, but when it is, we'll hopefully be out there and representing Upstate.
0: And you're not by any means the only four people from Upstate who participated, and you're the fastest. Four. No, I,
1: I believe there was uh, close to a hundred. I'd have to. Mm-hmm. I don't know the exact number again, but I think it was quite a bit. Yeah. Okay.
0: Great. Uh, well, uh, this is Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking with Lee Baruby, a physical therapist who has won the J.P. Morgan Corporate Challenge Road Race two years in a row. Um, so, tell me tell me a little bit about how and why you got started running. Does this go back to your childhood? Or? Yes,
1: it does. So, my parents actually started running in their, I believe, late twenties or thirties, and they did it just for what we're talking about to improve their overall health and wellness. And they started doing some of the races in the area that we lived. And usually the race has some sort of fun children run or race that um, we would do. So I think as early as when I was six years old, I was participating in some of those fun races and runs. Um, Usually they were no more than about a kilometer or a mile race. Um, And then I didn't really get into training specifically to um, race until I got into high school. Um, And at that point, I started actually training to race um but it was always our my parents always made it something fun fun always made it um something that we looked forward to uh so i've still am doing it to this day
0: so you uh ran track or cross
1: country in high school um both cross country and track in high school so indoor and outdoor track and cross country so it was a a year-long sport um that we would do um and then i did that in college as well
0: well neat and then you continue it to this day, mm-hmm. so you must enjoy it. I do enjoy Florida. it, and that's
1: why I continue it. I, I tell everyone that asks me why I continue to do it because if I didn't, I, I wouldn't do it. So if I, if I didn't enjoy this sport, I would probably try something else, but I enjoy it. It, it really is a sport that, or an activity that can get you outside. Um, I like to be outdoors exploring Syracuse. There's so many wonderful trails and beautiful trails in the area at Green Lakes. Um, I go to Highland Forest, um, Onondaga Lake Park. Um, there's just a l- lot of places that you can go and explore when you're running.
0: So do you recommend running for anyone who's able to run?
1: Um, so for most healthy adults, I would recommend that you can you can start up and, and try running. Um, I would caution for some people who have any cardiovascular or pulmonary conditions or significant medical conditions, orthopedic issues or someone who has a total joint replacement, they should probably consult with their doctor first. Um, But for most healthy adults, it's not a bad idea to try adding in running at least a few times a week.
0: So how do you, as a physical therapist, how do you recommend someone who hasn't been a runner before get started? Okay.
1: um, So I would recommend for a beginner that they try to work up to running at least 10 miles per week. And at that point, Um, when they're consistently hitting 10 miles per week, um, there's a rule of thumb that says you should increase your mileage no more than 10% of the total every week. So for instance, if you run 10 miles a week, um, and you're going to start to increase how many miles you're running, you would add on one extra mile the subsequent week. And once you get to 20 um, miles a week, it would be two miles the subsequent week. And that way, you're not adding on too many miles or too much intensity too early. The biggest problem um, for runners is when we're trying to do too much too early um, at, at too fast a pace, and that's when we get into to issues with injury.
0: 10 miles seems like a, a huge amount. of Are you talking about all at once? or No,
1: for the week. So uh, 10 miles total. In a a week.
0: mile and a half each day or whatever. Yeah,
1: so for okay. that beginner, it might be just a mile a day. I, when I first started out, that's how I started out. I Actually, my first day was just running one mile. The next day, I think I did work up to two miles, and then at the end of the week, I think I had somewhere around ten miles for that week. So that was my. So first So it does day. add up pretty quick. It, it does add up pretty quick, and but that's how you should progress. It is, um, you know, you're not trying to do, a, you know, say thirty miles in one week when you haven't run before. That's you might get through that first week, but the second week, you are probably going to run into some issues um, with injury.
0: Is it um, a good idea or a bad idea to start out walking first?
1: That's not a bad idea at all, actually. (laughs) And I think that could be, you know, I was very active when I was younger, so that might have been the reason why it was very easy for me to transition into running. So I would recommend it. It's just another way to add in to your overall regular exercise each week. So cross training, weight training, other forms of aerobic exercise, such as swimming, hiking, biking, um, that can all contribute to your total... Um, recommended daily exercise. Um, The American College of Sports Medicine recommends that you get um, three to five days of moderate to vigorous exercise per week or about hundred and fifty minutes of that type of exercise per week. So this is another way you can contribute to that point. So I'm not saying you have to do run every day, but um, if you want, if you're interested in running and and want to benefit from some of its health benefits, um, that would be one way to do it.
0: So let's talk about the health benefits. Mm-hmm. Why, I mean, why is running such a good exercise?
1: Um, it's a great exercise because it helps improve your cardiovascular and pulmonary health. Um, it can contribute to, um, you helping improve your bone density, maintaining your weight, maintaining your blood, uh, glucose, sugar levels, um, among a whole host of other health benefits, so just to name a few. Um, but it really is something that um, you can add in to help improve your overall uh, health and wellness.
0: And you don't have to have a gym membership, and you don't have to go necessarily
1: That's one thing finding. that I really like about running, too, is that it, the only thing that you have to pay for really is your shoes. <laughs> I guess you, the clothes would help, too, but um, really the only equipment that you need is um, some good shoes, Um, and otherwise the trails are all free. (laughs)
0: Okay. Now, some people say um, that running's not good for the knees. Are there concerns with um, how to run safely so that you don't um, develop knee problems or other problems?
1: Oh, so I'm glad you asked this question. It was actually one that I was thinking about um, might be important to try to address at least. So I I looked up um, one study that was recent from the Journal of Orthopedic Sports Physical Therapy um, that came out, I believe, this year. And, not to quote it, or to try to quote it correctly, so basically what this um, this study found is that um, moderate running, so let's say, I think they categorize it as, say, below 40 miles per week as a recreational runner, actually had a pr- protective effect against hip and knee OA. Um, people, OA? Um, oh. Osteoarthritis. Oh, okay. Sorry. (laughs) Um, So it actually had a protective effect against knee and hip arthritis. Um, Those who were were classified as competitive runners, so people like myself, actually, who probably run more than 50 miles a week, um, were actually at the same, had the same prevalence of hip and knee OA as someone who was sedentary and didn't run at all. So people, adults who don't run at all are sedentary, and those who are are very... um, run a lot are more likely to have arthritis than those who run recreationally. But I think the the takeaway from that is that um, for those beginners who are just getting into running, um, this might actually help um, prevent or at least reduce your risk for hip and knee osteoarthritis.
0: Interesting. Okay. And as you mentioned, um, picking out a shoe, I mean, that's probably pretty key to preventing injury, right? Picking out the right shoe. Yep,
1: It is very important to make sure that your shoe fits properly. So I I recommend that if you feel, if you buy a shoe and you wear it for the first time, it should fit like a glove. It shouldn't really cause any cramping with your foot when you're running. Um, My best shoes, the first day I put them on, feel the same all the way till the end. Um, So if you're, if it doesn't feel that way, it might be that you try a different shoe out or, you know, go back to the drawing board with that. Um, and, and it's really important to change your shoes every 300 to 500 miles. Rotate them out. And I, yep, and I rotate. I have two pairs of shoes actually because I run a lot. Um, I rotate two pairs of shoes so I'm not just putting a lot of miles on one pair. Um, and I would also say if it comes to that you've had one pair of shoe for over a year, it's probably a good idea to get rid of that shoe too as well, or at least phase it out from running because the foam breaks down even if you're not using it within that year.
0: Oh, great. Well, thank you. My guest has been physical therapist, Lee Barubi, winner two years in a row of the JP Morgan Corporate Challenge Road Race in Syracuse. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink Air. Next up, could scientists figure out a way to block the appetite stimulating hormone ghrelin? On Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The March of Dimes recently awarded a Syracuse University chemistry professor a grant to help pay for his research into Prader-Willi syndrome. It's a rare genetic disorder. Here to talk about this disease and his research is Dr. James Hauglin, an associate professor of chemistry at SU. Welcome Dr. Hauglin. Oh, thank Thanks you for the chance here. to come
2: talk about our work.
0: So please tell us a little about this
2: genetic disorder. So Prader-Willi syndrome is a genetic disorder that affects uh, somewhere between 10,000 and 25,000 children in the uh, population. It's considered an orphan disease. Um, Where there's been a change in how some of the genes are expressed off of the child's chromosomes, this uh, genetic syndrome has a number of different effects um, that are read out as the children. Early on in development, they, as they exhibit what's called failure to thrive, so they don't eat well, they don't gain uh, weight. Then as they mature into children and adults, you see some issues with muscle tone. Um, also, they do tend to exhibit a symptom called hyperphagia or insatiable appetite, where children with Prader-Willi syndrome will eat. They, we all know that feeling you can have after Thanksgiving dinner, where you're completely full. A Prader-Willi child can have, can eat enough so they are completely full of food, yet will still have hunger. Uh, one of the children that I met at a conference described it as, imagine when you have that itch right in the middle of your back you can't get to. Mm-hmm. Imagine that's hunger and it's there all the time. Um, and so when people have been studying sort of the uh, biomedical uh, background below that, that underlies Prader-Willi syndrome itself, one of the things they found was that Prader-Willi patients have an aberrantly high level of a hormone called ghrelin in their bloodstream. Um, that's one of the systems we work on in the laboratory. And as I learned that about the patients with Prader-Willi, that's sort of what our led our, our research toward that, toward looking at the basic biochemical um, foundations that might underlie some of the aspects of the disease. So ghrelin is known as the hunger hormone. It is. It okay. is. It was discovered back in 1999 and it was most well-known, as, as you said, as a hunger hormone. So ghrelin, effectively, is how your stomach tells your brain to eat. As we're sitting here, uh, hopefully we both had a well-balanced breakfast, um, but as we get on toward lunchtime, uh, there's an area of cells in the top of our stomach that will start secreting more and more and more ghrelin into our bloodstream. It'll transmit through the bloodstream up to our brains and effectively activate the hunger response. Then when we eat our lunch... Uh, that leads to a drop in ghrelin secretion. Effectively, the stomach senses it's full and your ghrelin levels will drop down. And so the ghrelin levels in your bloodstream will cycle through the day and that's what leads to effectively hunger. Um, so,
0: But a person with the Prader-Willi syndrome would have this feeling.
2: They have it all the time. Their, their level, The levels of ghrelin in their bloodstream are much higher than uh, a patient without Prader-Willi. They've done okay. a number of studies where they'll take uh, children with Prader-Willi syndrome and compare them to their siblings who don't have the syndrome, and they see that the ghrelin levels are much higher. Now, there's been a lot of discussion in the field of whether the high ghrelin is a cause of the symptom or a response to something else. And one of the things we're looking at with our work is to develop tools that we can hand off to the physicians and the endocrinologists so they can try to figure out, is ghrelin leading the charge or is it a response? To what's going on, and we don't really know at this point.
0: Now, one thing you you called it an orphan disease, and I yes. just want to be clear: it, it doesn't affect orphans. No, if-
2: um, so calling something an orphan disease, there's a classification. Um, the one I'm most well uh, I, I'm most familiar with is by the National Institutes of Health. An orphan disease refers to a disease. Uh, primarily in the American population per the definition, that has a relatively small penetration into the population. So these are going to be diseases that don't affect a huge part of the population.
0: And probably don't get a lot of attention exactly. funding-wise or exactly. research-wise.
2: Um, and there's been some moves at the federal level historically. For example, when if you develop a treatment for that could treat an orphan disease, when you go into clinical trials, you actually can do a smaller patient population if you're targeting an orphan disease, reflective of the fact that it's harder to get those patients together for the trial.
0: Okay, great. Well, how did you get involved in this? Because you're a chemist, right? Yeah, by training,
2: I'm an organic chemist and biochemist. When I started up my laboratory at Syracuse, broadly speaking, my research program focuses on understanding modifications that are performed on proteins in our body and then how those chemical modifications read out and change biological function. We became interested in ghrelin very early on my time at Syracuse, specifically because, in order to become active, ability to be able to activate the hunger signal, ghrelin needs a unique chemical modification. There's one amino acid in ghrelin, which is about 28 amino acids long, it's a relatively small hormone, um, where it's modified with an eight carbon fatty acid uh, with, called octanoate. Uh, what's interesting is at the time we started studying this back in 2010, it was the only known example of this modification. And as of about a week ago when I checked again, it's still the only known example. Mm-hmm. And it's very rare to see something unique in biology and biochemistry. So we got interested in studying the chemistry of how that modification is performed. Also with an eye to not just the fundamental Chemistry of what's going on, which is kind of what I'm interested in, but also because ghrelin needs that fatty acid attached to activate the hunger signal. If we can understand how that modification is performed and figure out ways to block it, that would give you a chemical or a um, a drug-based way, possibly, of blocking the ghrelin signal. So there's sort of a a breadth of interest areas, all the way from the fundamental chemistry all the way to the things that uh, topics that could develop into hopefully therapeutics treating disorders like in Prader-Willi syndrome or possibly diabetes or obesity that seem to have linkages to ghrelin signaling.
0: Well, that's what I was gonna say. I mean, beyond the, this disease, mm-hmm. um, just overeating, uh,
2: obesity. Right. We, I, I, I always joke with my research group as we've been studying this area, and not surprisingly, we had to do a lot of reading into the endocrinology literature to sort of understand what's known about ghrelin signaling and where, where the needs are in terms of developing molecular tools. And the more I read end- endocrinology, the more I really respect endocrinologists <laughs> because they do, in terms of insulin signaling or ghrelin or leptin, a number of hormones that regulate how our bodies sense and use and regulate energy, they, they've done amazing work, but their molecular tools are still, they're, they're at a relatively low level of complexity compared to what I'm used to as an as a organic chemist. And so I see part of our uh, work, along with understanding the biochemistry of the system, the tools we develop in my laboratory, we can hand off to those more medically oriented scientists and give them a more precise way, particularly with ghrelin, to change its signaling. And that will help us figure out how ghrelin is playing a role in all these different processes within the body.
0: Very interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with James Hauglin, an associate professor of chemistry at Syracuse University. Now, um, ghrelin, the hunger hormone that tells our Stom- has our stomach telling our brain when it's time to eat. Does it also tell it what to eat or what we're craving? Or it can. Does there's,
2: some, there's some data that suggests that high ghrelin levels lead to what's called hedonistic eating. Uh, the, the example I always use when I give a seminar, is that particularly when I'm talking to other scientists, I will ask the room, okay, how many of us at some point in our work or education lifetime have pulled an all-nighter? Most people have. (laughs) Um, And when you think about when you're up really, really late and you get the munchies, right, that's your ghrelin spiking in response to the stress of sleep deprivation. But also when you get the munchies, with rare exception, you don't tend to want to favor a well-balanced salad and like a whole grain muffin. You want pizza or mac and cheese Um, High calorie, what we think of as comfort foods, again, that would be what we call hedonistic eating. It makes you want to eat um, foods that are high in calorie, maybe not what we consider overall the healthiest thing for you, but that's really what it drives toward. Hmm. Um, There's also some data that's been coming out in the last few years suggesting that ghrelin, in its role with sort of motivating you to eat sort of the the food reward system – ghrelin levels may also affect other types of addictive behavior. There's some, I've seen some studies that link ghrelin signaling possibly to alcoholism. Sort of any sort of, uh, or addictive behavior where high ghrelin can affect your response to a stimuli like that. Hmm. Now, we're actually, we're interested in, we've started talking with some people I've met at conferences, and these conferences are great for ghrelin because you have people from all over the spectrum, from where I'm sitting at the heart, you know, chemistry, biochemistry, very molecular level. All the way up to, uh, you know, endocrinologists, medical scientists, even to people who are involved in lifestyle modification. So counselors involved in addiction therapy, and the idea is if we can understand how ghrelin signaling is coupled into all these different behaviors, not just you know, can you develop a, a pill to solve things, which very rarely actually works in in reality. But can we understand how those signaling pathways work and then mesh all the way from the molecular treatment to the lifestyle treatment to achieve the outcome we want for the patient?
0: Wow. Do you have hope that that's going to happen?
2: I, ho- I hope so. I think that my understanding of of how we we understand how a lot of these hormones are cycling in the body, and and that comes from the tools to being able to measure them in the bloodstream. The sort of the the my sense is, the biggest challenge has been currently, being able to sort of deconvolute. So so pull apart, you know, insulin signaling from ghrelin signaling from other hormones that are involved in our response to these stimuli. And part of that is developing tools that then you can say, okay, well, if I have a change, say, in ghrelin, is that mirrored or is it amplified or offset by a change in another one of the hormones? So basically be able to pull apart this pile of spaghetti and know what each of them is doing. But I think even in the time I've been involved in the field from when I started here at Syracuse, there's been great advances in this. And I think we're having more and more scientists from broad broad backgrounds getting involved, and that's what we need to sort of address these challenges. So ghrelin works with other hormones? It it appears to uh, possibly either amplify other hormones or offset other hormones. Uh, For example, insulin, which most of the listeners have heard of, it's involved in regulating our blood glucose. Uh, It's... There, we have, we've seen studies that suggest that high ghrelin levels in our bloodstream reduce the effectiveness of, effectiveness of insulin to stimulate glucose uptake. Effectively, it makes insulin not work quite as well. It also can affect your pancreas with an, how much insulin secretes relative to a glucose challenge. And so it suggests that high ghrelin makes insulin less effective, and vice versa, high insulin may make ghrelin less effective. And so one thing we've looked at, and we have some funding right now from the American Diabetes Association, um, would be to look for ways that we can try to reduce ghrelin signaling in the body. It might provide us a novel pathway to try to help treat type two diabetes. Effectively, not you know taking insulin like some patients have to, especially as they get further on in the disease. But if we suppress ghrelin signaling, can we make the insulin your body's making more effective? Right? Mm-hmm. But part of the challenge, again, has been knowing, being able to figure out how all these things are talking to each other, and particularly in organisms, whether it's us or rodents or whatever you're studying, it's really, you know, you don't get to play with one of them at a time. You have to sort of take the whole bag right. at the time and figure out how to, how to uh, determine what each of the different hormones are doing.
0: Do uh, does a test exist now to test a person's ghrelin levels or how well their ghrelin is working? Or? So
2: we do. There are there are some kits uh, that we use in my laboratory. We buy from companies that can use antibody based detection. Uh, one challenge with ghrelin uh, that we've what we're dealing with right now is that in the bloodstream, as I mentioned, to be active, ghrelin gets that short acid attached to it, that octanoate. Um, it turns out that there are a lot of different enzymes in our bloodstream that are really good at taking that acid back off. And so if you take, say, a blood sample, and we've done, we've worked with this with, both, um, with collaborators at a university in Ottawa, Canada, if you take a blood sample from a rodent, for example, all the, what we call acylated ghrelin, the ghrelin that has the fatty acid on it, it hydrolyzes. The fatty acid comes off with a half-life of less than five minutes. Mm. And so the trick to that is getting a good measurement of actually how much of the acylated ghrelin there is. Uh, we've developed some chemical tools that help stabilize that, so it makes it easier to measure that. But we're also looking at collaborators both here at Syracuse and at other institutions to try to develop better ways to study ghrelin in the bloodstream. Because that's one question, especially with ghrelin cycling so quickly in our bodies. You know, As we understand the dynamics of how ghrelin levels go up and down and how they change, that's going to help us understand how the signaling works.
0: Well, your recent work has identified some molecules that can potentially block ghrelin signaling. So
2: yeah, we but. we just published a paper back in uh, January, where we one of the tricks was studying grelin and the enzyme that modifies ghrelin is called ghrelin o or GOAT for short. Uh, no shortage of laughter in the laboratory <laughs> about that. What we one of the challenges has been that we don't have any drug-like molecules that actually block ghrelin isolation, and so it's been sort of a catch twenty-two situation that we can't inhibit grelin because we have no molecules, but we didn't have any. We started using some of the some of the uh, Tests we have in the laboratory to just screen libraries of compounds from the National Institute of Health, effectively throwing things against a wall and seeing if anything stuck. And through this work that was done by a good number of undergraduates in my lab, they found that one of these molecules—it's uh, called a synthetic triterpenoid. Effectively, it's a something that looks like a steroid but a little bit bigger. Um, where that molecule effectively blocked the activity of goat, it blocked goat's ability to acylate grelin. Hmm. Working on that molecule, we then worked with. Um, John Chisholm, my synthetic collaborator at Syracuse University, to effectively pair that molecule down and figure out exactly what parts of it are important. And those studies both helped us find new molecules that additionally block ghrelin modification, but they also helped teach us things about how GOAT is modifying ghrelin itself. And as we learned how the enzyme works, that makes it easier to develop new inhibitors.
0: Very exciting. Thank you so much for talking about this. My guest has been Dr. James Hauglin, an associate professor of chemistry at Syracuse University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, the grieving process for those who have been caregivers. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. That deep sorrow we feel when someone we love dies is called grief, and sometimes it feels overwhelming. Grief is a universal experience and at the same time very personal. Here to talk about the grief felt by caregivers is bereavement counselor Susan Bacherick from the Hospice Grief Center at Hospice of Central New York. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So we're talking about caregivers specifically. What? Who are the caregivers? Well, the caregivers can be
3: anyone. Um, A lot of the individuals that access our um, grief center at hospice um, could be an adult child that's just lost a parent. It could be um, a spouse, a a spousal loss. It could be um, a parent who's lost a child. It could be a loss of a
0: brother or sister or any relative in your family. So someone who's been taking care of someone who's been ill and... and approaching death exactly for days months years exactly sometimes it could go on for 10 years so let's talk a little bit about why um individual people react to the loss of someone in different ways grief is different for everyone right it is and
3: um, one of the major factors that you need to look at is the relationship Um, when you lose a spouse is different than when you lose a parent and um, you sometimes when you're caregiving, you put your own needs aside and you put all your energy into the caregiving. And this can take a toll on you physically, emotion,
0: emotionally, and cognitively. S- such a toll that you might not even realize it while it's going on, Exactly, right? yes. Okay. So um, what, what kind of advice do you have to offer to someone who's a caregiver of someone who's approaching death? Is there something they can do um, to help prepare for that? Well,
3: one of the things they need to do is to find a support system. It's important to reach out to others to see who else can help. You don't realize what a toll it takes on you until after the caregiving's over, and then you realize how drained you are. But you also realize that you've lost your purpose you know, your purpose was caregiving for this individual, and now you ask yourself, what is my purpose?
0: I can imagine if your day is filled with caregiving chores and, and errands and this, and, and all of a sudden you don't have any of that, you, I imagine people could struggle. Right, because you put your
3: own life aside. And so it's important to not isolate yourself and to try to have a fairly normal routine and not take it on. Um,
0: okay. Well, um, what is the one thing that caregivers are looking for when they, when they come to you and they're seeking counseling for their loss? Well, is- one of the
3: things they ask us in counseling is, you know, I feel like I'm going crazy and um, I'm feeling numb. And these are really normal reactions um, to their grief, whether it's the impending loss or the loss has happened. Um, we try to validate their feelings, and we try to find have them find a way to embrace their loss because it is a huge absence in their life when this
0: person dies. So what is the counseling like? Is it group counseling that you offer? Or?
3: I find that the group counseling has been the most effective when you're with a group of people and you all are experiencing the same type of loss, whether it's a spousal loss or parent loss, you have this connection with these other people and your feelings get validated by them as well. And I do think that's important. A lot of people ask, how long am I going to feel this way? And when you're sitting in a room with, you know, eight, ten people. And they say I'm three years out, or I'm four years out, and this is how I'm feeling. Um, I think that helps you realize. Well, maybe I'm not going to feel like this forever. That it will change. I'm not saying it's always going to get better, but it will change.
0: Well, and it also a group I think would help remind people that they're not alone. That exactly. this is not a unique yeah. thing. That yeah. you know, other people have yeah. gone through and survived it and gone on. And a lot of
3: times when you've suffered a loss and you've been caregiving for a long period of time, you do lose your social circle of friends. They go on with their lives. And you feel isolated after the death. And so connecting with other people in a group, um, you build new relationships. And I can honestly tell you most of the groups that I've run, um, and a lot of them are spousal loss, they stay connected afterwards. That's neat. And that's a nice feeling to know that you've done that for them. This person understands how they're feeling. They're not telling them how to feel. And um, and it feels safe for them.
0: So it's sort of a different kind of support than you might get from your family exactly. or neighbors or right. that are Be- kind, but
3: yeah, yeah, just kind of a different level, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, and a lot of times they say, I know exactly how you feel, but they don't. Unless you've been through it, unless you've experienced it, you really just don't know how they feel. And sitting in a room with people that really truly
0: understand how you feel um, is healing. Right. This is Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with bereavement counselor Susan Backerick from Hospice of Central New York. Um, I wanted to talk about triggers. Um, triggers after a, after a caregiver has lost their loved one. Okay, well, triggers are not
3: just dates on the calendar. Triggers can be sights, sounds, smells. You might hear a song on the radio. You might be driving by a restaurant that you used to go to all the time, and all of a sudden you feel this flood of emotions, which is normal. It's a normal reaction, Um, but it also reminds you of your loved one, and you feel like, You've just taken 10 steps backwards when you thought you were doing so well. But emotions are normal and they can hit you anytime, anywhere. Um, I had a friend of mine who said she was standing in the post office one day and all of a sudden the wave came and, and hit her and she just dropped everything and walked out the door. And that's okay. You know, It's, 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 it's natural. So there's sort of no predicting. There's no predicting. We always talk to people about having what we call an escape plan. There's going to be things that are going to be coming up, social events, whether it's with family and with friends. And if that wave of emotions hits you when you're at this, whether it could be Thanksgiving dinner with the family, you just tell one person in the room that if that Happens, you're just going to get up and you're going to leave. And would they please let everyone know you're okay? You just need to leave. And that way you can exit that social situation gracefully without having to explain why to everyone in the room.
0: I think when we think about triggers, certainly like holidays Mm -hmm. would be a big one Mm -hmm. that you could Mm -hmm. anticipate Mm -hmm. a little bit. But it's interesting you note that it could be a song on the radio. It could be... um, a smell. Yeah. Now, is do the triggers um, happen more uh, abundantly soon after the person passes, or could these triggers go decades into the future? Both. 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 Yeah. I
3: I still get triggered. My mom died two years ago, and um, I still get triggered.
0: Yeah. Well, um, let's talk about some rituals for healing. Okay. And not not necessarily to say to get rid of the triggers. I mean, the triggers are, are there, right? A ritual is a way to
3: remember and honor this person because they're always going to be a part of your life. They're not physically here, but they're going to be a part of your life forever. So rituals help you to remember this person and keep them in your life. So some rituals could be um, lighting a candle, keeping a journal, planting a tree or or a a flower garden. Um, Some of the other things you could do is listen to their favorite music, Um, create a photo album, um, or even just sit around and tell stories about this loved one. Um, Some people are action people. So they set up a scholarship in this person's name or participate in a charity or a run or they give gifts to, or donations to a hospital or a nursing home. All these are really healthy,
0: healing ways to honor your loved one. Okay, neat. Are there things that um, friends or families can do to help in your healing?
3: Well, they can acknowledge that everyone grieves differently. So they have to go through this at their own pace. It's really important not to tell them how to feel don't offer them advice. Don't judge them if they're not going through it fast enough for you in your comfort level. Um, and don't, don't say the words, I know exactly how you feel, because they don't think you do, and you probably don't. Um, so it's important to be a good listener, to be sensitive to what they need, to recognize that this person's life has changed forever and if they need something done then do it for them and don't wait for them to ask you. I always say there's three important people to have in your life after someone dies. A listener, a doer, and a distractor. The listener will just listen to you and not offer any advice or, or be judgmental. The doer is the type of person that can help you get your tasks done, even if it's just mowing the lawn or going grocery shopping. And that distractor is that person that can take you out of your grief, even if it's just for an hour or two, because you can't grieve twenty-four-seven. So those people are important too.
0: And you might surprise yourself of who who steps up. To who be steps those... up? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Are there? Um... Are there times when a a friend or family member should be concerned about someone who's grieving? Are there red flags to look out for, or how do you know when their grief is normal and when it's something to be alarmed about?
3: Well, some people tend to isolate, and I do think that can be unhealthy. Some people try to do a quick fix on their grief and bury their feelings. Um, Some... Red flags could be excessive drinking, um, use of uh, non-prescription medication, um, and isolation.
0: Okay. Um, Anything else that the caregiver can do that would be helpful?
3: Well, as we mentioned earlier, it's important to connect to people who understand how you feel. And I I do think that um, this confirms that your loss, and your reactions are universal. And as we said, Hospice Grief Center offers one-on-one counseling. We offer the support groups, and we're trying to do more specific loss groups. We're finding now that there's a lot of loss of an adult child. So we're gonna start forming groups about that. And um, especially around the holidays, we do holiday talks because that's a difficult time. We do holiday workshops. Um, We do workshops for kids as well, because we
0: can't forget they're grieving too. Sure, absolutely. Um, Is there anything caregivers can do as they're anticipating, you know, the loss of their loved one that they're taking care of? Are there steps that they can take before the loved one passes that will help ease, I don't know, ease the transition into being alone or?
3: Well, listen to what your friends and family are saying. They can sometimes recognize something that you need that you may not need, not identify needing. Um, a lot of people feel, I can do this, I can do this. I know exactly how. And they don't want to let go of that role, but they need to sometimes. They need to take a break from it. So try to take you know, advice of families and friends when they say, you need to get out of the house today.
0: Neat. Well, good advice. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. My guest has been Susan Backerick, a bereavement counselor at the Hospice Grief Center at Hospice of Central New York. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
4: Gloria Heffernan's poetry, fiction, and essays have been widely published in journals and magazines like The Columbia Review, Stone Canoe, The Chronicle of Higher Ed. She teaches part-time at Le Moyne College in Syracuse. She has two poems in this issue of The Muse, and they evoke for me the power and poignancy of memory, loss, and kindness. Here is Let Morning Come, modeled after Jane Kenyon's Let Evening Come. Let the darkness of the long night recede from the city's rooftops, blending morning with morning as the sun rises. Let the taxis barrel down the streets as if there were somewhere to go beyond this hospital room. Let morning come. Let the unopened envelopes pile up in the mailbox. Let sunlight pour into your kitchen where dishes still litter the sink. Let squirrels and pigeons forage in the park. Let the neighbors wonder about the woman taken away in an ambulance. Let morning come. To the milk carton in the refrigerator, to the blinking light on the answering machine, to the ones left behind, let morning come. Let cold wind blow as it will and don't be afraid. Grief is the outer fabric of a coat lined with gratitude, so let morning come. And next is her poem, Hiking Coco. Coco head soars a thousand feet over the glittering waves of Hanoma Bay. Vertical climb, too much for the aging tourist who doesn't know any better. Temperature a blistering 100 degrees empty water bottle drier than the dusty bed of the crater below. The collapse is slow, graceful almost, as I sink to the railroad ties that mark the ascent. And then it begins. Ohana, they call it. Family. The man who gives me his extra bottle of water. The young girl in fuchsia running shorts, massaging my hand to keep the blood flowing the college student who tucks his backpack under my head while he fans my face with his baseball cap, the German tourist who hoists my feet over her shoulders to keep your blood circulating, she explains. I surrender to them all as they minister to the stranger lying prostrate on the trail. Thank you, I say, mahalo, a mumbled mantra uttered down a long corridor where I hear my own echo. They shush me as if I were a toddler struggling against nap time. But they need to know what I see, gazing up from my place on the ground, where I witness the tender gestures of anonymous angels, saving the life of a woman whose name they will never know.
0: been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week, HealthLink will look at this year's flu season. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.